0: Today, Nate welcomes back Justin Bankston to continue We Love Rock Docs with a look at the documentary 1991, The Year Punk Broke, which focuses on a European tour that saw Nirvana opening up for Sonic Youth. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time
1: to let it roll. Or should I say it's time to rock docker roll or something like that? Anyway, I'm Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined once again by Justin Bankston to continue our series, We Dig Rock Docs. And tonight we're talking about one that's near, and we'll see how dear, to the heart of Gen Xers everywhere. 1991, The Year Punk Broke, David Markey's uh, 1993 release. A documentary about Sonic Youth's European tour with Nirvana opening up. Justin, welcome.
2: Thank you. Yeah, this is an interesting one.
1: It is indeed. Uh, I, I was it as well. Let's let's start with our memories of this documentary. Like what? Because I had not seen it since either the 90s or the. I it's it had to have been the 90s. I don't think I saw it when the DVD came out. It had to be the VHS release in the early 90s, and my memories of it basically boiled down to. Kurt Cobain diving into his drum set in Ireland and Thurston Moore making a few jokes that I can't remember if I thought they were funny at the time or not. And an all-star lineup, Jay Mascus, um, Courtney Love, Mark Arm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it seemed to me that it... Was more narrative in my memory that it kind of told the story of not quite Lollapalooza, but some Lollapalooza adjacent bands in the year of the first Lollapalooza, right before Nirvana's Nevermind Breaks Through big in the commercial mainstream. What were your memories of this film?
2: Well, I specifically remember the night I saw it because I had just moved to Austin and, you know, I grew up in the valley and down there there wasn't like a lot of information about music. There weren't a lot of music nerds there wasn't a lot of uh, access to information so i got to austin and i was just hoovering up all this information about all this music and i was like a kid in a candy store but i was also new to town i didn't have any real friends yet so i took myself to go see uh mud honey at liberty lunch but it was sold out and this is before i knew that you were supposed to go around to the back and just hang out out back of liberty lunch and hear the show back there and make the scene so instead of doing that because i didn't know any better i took myself to the adobe mall and i saw the year punk broke at the adobe theater uh in lieu of seeing the band and i remember feeling pretty proud of myself that i had managed to like take in something you know uh that was consolation happening. prize yeah exactly and so I was super fascinated with all this stuff that was happening, but I was kind of trying to figure it out by myself. I didn't have a lot of context at the time. And I remember being fascinated by the film, and I remember being thankful that I got to see something, you know, that night that had some kind of, like, vibe to it.
1: I see. I, I, can, I can relate a little bit. I was um, sort of on the tail end of my fascination with live music. I got here to austin in 88 so i'd had a few years on you um but as mike watt or maybe it was d boone said i think we were both fucking corndogs as they say uh when we came to town and uh but yeah i i got to see mud honey in summer of 89 or 90 i think um right after they cut their hair at the cannibal club on 6th street it was an incredible show but back to the movie um and so what was your response watching it again
2: i i realized that i didn't remember hardly anything about it uh which isn't really surprising uh but i was i was kind of surprised i think kind of like you were that it wasn't more of a movie you know what i mean it was just kind of like this uh really meandering sort of uh Thing, But there is like really lots of great Sonic Youth content, which I I did appreciate on second viewing.
1: Yeah, it's it's essentially a concert film. Um, And with uh, there's a guy, Bill Nichols, who's a scholar of documentary film. He's got six kinds of documentaries. Most of the documentaries we talk about are what he calls expository documentaries. That's the classic Ken Burns tells you the whole story with an omniscient narrator this is what he Nichols calls an observational documentary, which is basically just turning on your camera and pointing at it stuff. It's the classic format that Males Brothers used for their Don't Look Back documentary about Bob Dylan's tour of England in 1965 or the Stones uh, and Gimme Shelter, their film of the Stones' performance at Altamont. You're documenting something as it happens, so there's not the historical perspective. This tour not nearly as epic as Altamont, and probably not even Bob Dylan's 1965 tour, but still a fairly big deal for Gen Xers, at least white Gen Xers, white punk rock Gen Xers, because um, of Nirvana's imminent breakthrough and, and the the big star turn that's about to happen. But the thing that really struck me, though, was how absolutely cringe I found... And aren't I hip and modern now, saying cringe like the kids do? Um, but we didn't say cringe in the '90s, but we had it. And the, the 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 antics of Dave Grohl and Thurston Moore and Kurt Cobain just absolutely made my teeth grind through this whole thing. Like it's this smug, smarmy, snarky sort of sense of humor. I read when I after I watched it. One time, then I went back and did some reading on it. And it turns out they were doing mock uh, parodies of Madonna's Truth or Dare documentary, which I had totally forgotten about. So Kurt Cobain at one point walks in and says things are neat. He's imitating Kevin Costner, doing the same thing backstage. Kim Gordon's riff about she doesn't want to see fat industry people on the front row. She's imitating Madonna, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. Did you find the attempts at humor as painful as I did?
2: Oh, yeah, it was awful. And- yeah. I did the same thing you did. I you know, watched it, and then I went and read up on it, and I watched it again. And it sort of makes a little bit of sense if you r- s- realize that every time you're confused about why everyone's acting like a complete fucking idiot, that they're trying to like make fun of Madonna, which, you know, I certainly didn't get that as a kid watching it at the W Mall, and I don't see how they could have, you know... It's it's like sort of like the Gen X, like private joke disease gone to its full terminus, you know, like they've got all this horrible shit in the movie and nobody understands why except them and they think it's funny. Yeah, so it's 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 real dumb.
1: <laughs> it, yeah, it's definitely it has not aged Aged well at all um, But let's talk about the lineup of, of Bands in the movie um, the The good thing is it's got 18 songs Almost all of them are full performances Which is nice it, it has become a real pet peeve Of mine to see so many Films that just have snippets of Performances and I I still I still view the musical performance as the primary source that that's what I want to see. The talking about it and everything else uh to a lesser extent. These are all uh live shows from Europe. The sound is not great. I suspect that they recorded this with their cameras. Um I could be wrong about that. Maybe it was soundboard stuff. I wasn't watching it on on in my home theater system or anything, so I don't know. But it's basically 18 songs. For the most part, not quite every other song is Sonic Youth, but at least every third or fourth song is Sonic Youth. And and so I think they've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight songs. So eight out of ten are Sonic Youth. Another five are Nirvana. Um, and then you've got one each by Dinosaur Jr., Babes in Toyland, Gumball, uh, the Ramones. I think the Ramones they cut short, actually. Um, and, and that's it. And so let's hear our first tune And this is Schizophrenia off Sonic Youth's sister album And this is not the live cut that opens the movie This is from the SST album release Schizophrenia by Sonic Youth Schizophrenia by Sonic Youth, the opener to their 1987 classic uh, album Sister on SST Records. That was a concept album about Philip K. Dick, a uh, classic interpretation of a classic Philip K. Dick story about meeting and getting romantically involved with a, a woman with acute schizophrenia. There's the joke about the guy who picks up Philip K. Dick after a stay at a mental hospital, and he was like, Philip, how did, how did the treatment go? And he's like, Oh, you know, I met some great girls. <laughs> so (laughs) always trouble always trouble when you're meeting uh relationship partners in a middle institution but the other thing that hurt me about this was i felt like a lot of the live performances um were were lacking i thought the sound was bad and my beef with sonic youth was always that they couldn't sing that well and I didn't think Kim Gordon could sing at all, but live I felt like Thurston Moore failed even worse than Kim. Kim sang about as well as she did on the record, and the same with Lee Ronaldo. But Thurston had a massive fall-off, I thought. Did that ding your appreciation of the music at all? or?
2: Well, I I might have seen it a little differently than you. I thought that the Sonic Youth performances were, generally speaking, pretty great. Uh, and really fun to listen to, especially Schizophrenia, which they did a great job of kicking off the documentary with. It's a really strong performance of a really great song. Uh, And I think, you know, that varying sound quality you mentioned, I think the sound quality is better on the recordings of the Sonic Youth stuff. I think they probably had a different setup for when they were capturing Sonic Youth versus the ancillary stuff. Uh, And so those... Performances come across a little more powerful, like sonically speaking. Uh, and I thought that they were—I love Sonic Youth—and I thought that those performances were were all worth watching the movie for. Whereas I thought Nirvana came across real thin and agitated and not particularly uh, credible or or authoritative in any of their performances.
1: Hmm. I had a different take on that. Bleach... Or, I'm not Bleach, but Negative Creep, the one that was the first song they played with, I, f- I felt like it was almost a deconstruction of that song, which had only been out for two or three... two years at that point, I think, that um, came out in late 88. So I guess three, almost three years. Um, because that's their most heavy metal song. I can remember that song in particular being one of the first punk tracks that I could play for my metalhead friends and everybody just commenced to headbang in without any objecting. Um, but it felt like when they did it live here that they were deliberately weakening it. Um, but I thought "School," uh, the next song I did, was a really strong performance. And I think I feel like Cobain's vocals are always strong. Uh, to me, that's what separates Nirvana from most of their peers in this is that he wrote actual songs. And he had a strong singing voice. And not that that's better than what anybody else is doing. It just made it more palatable to a pop audience. Um, Although I do think the singing, I've become kind of a snob about singing. But I'm violating all my rules because I'm supposed to be aesthetically neutral for this show. And we're just supposed to tell the historical facts. But this stuff is so personal to me because I cared so much about these bands when I was a kid that it just kind of pained me. Everything about grunge and alternative rock has kind of pained me. I just, the way it all turned out in the end was very disheartening and dis- disappointing, all the way up to Thurston and Kim's divorce in two, 2011 or whatever it was. Um, so, my bad for for projecting, you know, my paw kettle onto <laughs> alternative rock stars. But for whatever reason, I felt like
2: uh, just another parental betrayal of Gen X. By, oh, um, Nate. Oh, Nate. If only there had been some way some clue that the musical movement of our youth was going to peter out in disappointment and disillusion. If there was only some historical precedent or <laughs> some kind of way we could have seen into the, that future.
1: I know, I know, it, it, but, but I thought we were going to be different. You know? I thought we were the ones. and uh, <laughs>
2: Yeah. So, uh,
1: yeah. Um, but that's that's the basic gist of it. And I think that the historical takeaway from this, I think the thing that it it really reminds anybody who watches it was that 19, alternative music was a thing in 1991. Hist- we look back on it and or maybe millennials or, or Zoomers look back on it and they talk about grunge as the big movement of the early 90s. And what you see here is even though you've got the band Nirvana that became the standard bearer for the grunge movement, they've got nothing to do with Alice in Chains or Soundgarden or Pearl Jam in this point in time. They are aligned with Sonic Youth. They're aligned with Babes in Toyland, Dinosaur Jr. They're much more noise rock than they are grunge, although they're uh, one of the heavier bands on this lineup. But it's... Just interesting to me, and and I interviewed Adam Caress about this, and he has a pretty well argued theory that you know Nirvana breaks big in late '91 with Smells Like Teen Spirit, and it was a culmination of a number of things. A number of bands have been building that way. He links it to U2 and REM, which were kind of in that alternative scene, The Cure, uh, a New Order, that kind of British. Um, po-faced crop of bands also were were getting big and and sort of you know plateaued and then Lollapalooza was this big thing headlined by Jane's Addiction this happened was Lollapalooza was happening at the same time as this tour of Europe by Sonic Youth and Nirvana and it's just interesting to me how um in retrospect, we've rewritten history to talk about grunge and this explosion out of Seattle as if Jane's addiction never happened, as if you know r e m hadn't had a big breakthrough as if the butthole surfers weren't playing you know to to several thousand people a night for i I think their writer their guarantee was like fifteen grand or something by nineteen ninety which just seemed unbelievable for a punk band you know and so this one of the things I'm trying to correct with let it roll is this habit of telescoping history and compressing everything and forgetting everything. Cause it, it's when you really look at the story, there's a lot more to it than just Kurt Cobain came out of Seattle with, with Eddie Vedder and, and Chris Cornell right behind him and changed the world. The, the musical world changed because of a lot of people from a lot of different places. And Sonic youth played a very big role in that. And we'll talk about that.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you said it a lot of it in one word earlier when you said "Lollapalooza." You know what I mean? Like, yep that that whole thing was was operating under full steam before Seattle quote happened, right? So, the the marketplace was changing the 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 appetite for this sort of new, more aggressive, artier style of of rock and roll music was evolving rapidly and and so there was it's not like Nirvana came into like a a sterile field and made it verdant right there they came into like a situation that was primed and ready for them to happen
1: yeah absolutely and let's go ahead and hear Nirvana this is their tune School live from the Reading Festival in 1991 this is the one live track from the movie that I wanted to use And that was Nirvana doing school from their first album Bleach live at the Reading Festival in 1991? And yeah, and they were already playing the Reading Festival, which is a big festival. Um, and they were there as kind of Sonic Youth's little brother band. And that's this is where Sonic Youth's real role in pop culture, I think, the biggest thing Sonic Youth ever did was get help Nirvana get signed to Geffen. Um, Sonic Youth was on Geffen. Nirvana followed him, and it was a very canny strategy by David Geffen and his crew of people. I think Geffen was already kind of removed from the active day-to-day. I can't remember which executives made these decisions. Um, My bad on that. But it was a very deliberate sort of Pied Piper strategy. It's a a pretty well-proven tactic by a record company to sign a group like Sonic Youth that – By this point, I think by the time Sonic Youth did a major label album, Goo, which came out earlier in 1991, it was their sixth album. So they were a proven professional act that um, didn't have any massive drug habits or anything. The the, the label knew they were going to show up, they were going to do their job. They were eminently critically respected. Like Rolling Stone had named them the Hot Band of 1988 in their hot issue of that year, Um, and that was... One of the things that drove them to go to a major label, because their album, *Teenage uh, Daydream Nation, which um, was the album that got them the hot status in Rolling Stone, which people now can't fathom, that actually meant something, even though Rolling Stone wasn't really very cool. It was one of the cooler magazines you could get anywhere in the country. And... Um, that album was on Enigma in America and you just could not get it in stores. It was very difficult to find. So they were frustrated. They'd, they'd put out two albums on SST, which was Greg Ginn of black flags, famous indie label. Um, that was famous for putting out great albums in the, in the mid eighties. And then by the late eighties was already becoming infamous for being difficult to work with and not paying people. So Sonic Youth, um, you know, and they'd had trouble with their original mentor Glenn Bronca and his Neutral Records, um, so they they learned the hard way that um, independent labels were not a panacea, and that you could get ripped off by an indie just as easily as you could get ripped off by a major. So you might as well sign up with somebody who's got uh, catering and buses.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, and Enigma is just like like laughably awful in every way, uh, like. There's probably there's gotta be a movie out there about just how much Enigma Record sucked because I've never heard anything except bad stuff about it.
1: It's true. It's true. Although they did sign some good bands, and I suspect that's one of those stories that it's difficult to tell because there are shady and vindictive people that were involved
0: in the the
1: label. And, and that's just my suspicion. I have no reason to believe that's true, but that's just what I've seen with other shady or other, you know, labels of that ilk. Um, but yeah, so that, Sonic Youth is just really interesting to me as, as, because they're definitely relentless careerists and you have to hand it to them, um, for, being a group of people coming out of the New York City no wave and avant-garde art music scene to have built a three-decade career as rock musicians and make nice livings. You know, they I don't think they ever had mansions or, or any of that stuff, but they had nice middle class lifestyle and became absolutely beloved by the critics, even though they feuded early on with Robert Christgau. They were the kind of people who really cared what Robert Christgau thought and really were good at manipulating critics or not manipulating, but working critics to cover their stuff. And they were one of the first bands out of America in the 80s to get good press out of a visit to England. And it was a show that was a terrible disaster, like their equipment just didn't work and they smashed everything and the British press went crazy, which – um, I'm sure had to have Black Flag and the Bad Brains and R.E.M. and all these other bands that had gone over to England and done their best and, and just been savaged by the British press. But Sonic Youth and I think the Butthole Surfers had gotten good press in Britain as well. And they kind of pioneered a tactic because what happened was they got good press in Britain when they went back to New York where they couldn't draw flies. Suddenly they could draw a little bit in the clubs and they were such road warriors touring both the states and Europe and and Britain that by 1991 they had really built themselves a following and you know for a band that the basic premise of sonic youth is we're going to use weird messed up tunings and make what should be teeth rattling unbearable atonal noise and turn it into rock songs uh, without any strong singers in the band i mean to pull that off um it's a real testament to talent but also to hard work and dedication and just relentless schmoozing and and hyping thurston Moore is this absolute relentless marketer
2: yeah i mean i have to agree with all that stuff they're 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 the one of those great bands that like making sure that you know what they're about and who they are whilst making it simultaneously clear that they're serious artists and that what they're about is, uh, is serious and they can do all of that with a straight face. Uh, and I think it's, they only pull it off because the music is great and I'll stand behind that statement all day. I love their music. I think for them to be, package up this whole downtown no wave New York thing into tuneful music that's exciting is uh it's remarkable. And then they had, as you said, the the sort of like ability to talk about it and to to move it forward in a way uh that a lot of their peers didn't.
1: Yeah, and were absolutely shameless. You know, like as they toured the country, the United States through the eighties they would write notes to Greg Ginn and SST Records on the bathrooms at every club they played. You know, they they would shamelessly stalk these people. And they were just really star fuckers. And you can see that in this movie, that they they were cultivating Kurt Cobain. They knew he was a massive talent. They knew he was a superstar. I don't know if they realized how big a superstar he was, because the scene they were in had been systematically closed off from opportunities throughout the 80s. So there was kind of this feeling like you were in the kiddie pool, I think, um, to a certain extent. I mean, you'd had Husker Du and The replacement sign with major labels in 86, and neither of those bands had broken through. And, you know, you had a succession of of bands that gotten bigger and bigger, and like R.E.M. had broken through, but R.E.M. wasn't hardcore. They played a lot of the same clubs and helped develop the underground circuit, but they were folk pop Um guitar rock and and turned into arena rock and had their big breakthrough already. So it didn't quite it didn't feel like REM was laying down ladders for other people like to follow the way that Lollapalooza and the Nirvana breakthrough did. It just but it did have this feeling of accumulative wave that was building and building and building. And there, there were multiple scenes Um, And Steph tells me we need to take a sponsor break, and when we get back, we'll talk more about Sonic Youth's epic tour of Europe in 1991. And so, yeah, so Sonic Youth is um, one of these bands that is – put the work in. Like, they – a really unusual band. They were older when they started, so that by the time of this thing, they're in their early 30s, I want to say – which is, you know, quite old for for a, a rock band. They, um, Goo was their sixth album. Very few bands make their major label de- debut with their sixth album. I mean, I've always been a snob for early records by a group, so I literally had never listened to Goo until this project. Um, <laughs> like I loved everything from, uh, I think it was their second album, Confusion and Sex. The first one I got was Bad Moon Rising. Um, but then I went back and got Confusion and Sex and then Evol and Sister and uh Daydream Nation. Loved all of those and felt like I had been there done that by the time that Goo came out. And um and I feel like Gef, but the thing is if you look at their discography, they continued to put out really strong albums and their fans swear by their records all the way through. It's very comparable to Fugazi to me and that they just, uh, I don't know. Was there a big fall off? Did you keep following Sonic Youth all the way through the, to the end?
2: I did. They kept making good records. And then, you know, uh, and then they would, they would sort of take breaks and do like weirder projects and stuff. Uh, sort of kept the sort of avant-garde credentials current you know what i mean yeah uh and and so they were really great about about doing that and and they put out a new record washing machine or whichever one and you could listen to it and i went and bought each one as it came out and it was a good record you know eventually you got to a point where you're like how many sonic youth records do i need uh but none of them were bad you know what i mean
1: yeah, yeah. And I think I think clean living and not that they weren't didn't not that they were teetotalers or anything, but they never they never seemed to fall victim to personal habits um or you know degenerate lifestyles or anything like that. So pretty remarkable feat in the longevity, but their creative development from that run from bad you know, they were the kind of band that started out extremely, extreme on the far fringes of even the underground scene. And um, they were in a scene in New York, like no wave was this thing that followed punk in the late 70s, Lydia Lunch and Teenage Jesus and the Jerks and uh, uh, James Chance and the Contortions and this extremely noisy jazz-oriented scene that an ESG, which was a really cool funk band, that none of those groups ever really went anywhere um and then there's a next wave of it with sonic youth and the swans and live skull and to some extent that they were you know that was the 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 scene they were in in new york which was just seen as this noisy artsy underground scene it was extreme like hardcore but it wasn't young it wasn't fast you know, hardcore kids really had no truck with it, but Sonic Youth was fascinated with hardcore and kept pushing themselves into hardcore venues and and got out on the hardcore circuit. Um, But then by their third album, they put out Bad Moon Rising, and it's this quantum leap in songwriting. And they do it again with Evol and again with Sister and again with Daydream Nation. So, you know, you just had this building sense of wow these people are really going places and then goo comes out and you know they sign with a major label the timing was right it was a very shrewd choice on geffen's part because you know that what that's what got him nirvana and i bet they made money on sonic youth because goo sold like two hundred thousand copies i think um their second album, On Geffen, did about the same. Their third album, On Geffen, made it all the way to number thirty-four on the charts and sold about two hundred and fifty thousand copies. So that was kind of the ceiling for Sonic Youth. Like they, they were never going to get radio play. And I can remember talking to people who had seen them when they headlined Lollapalooza, or who had gone to see them when they were headlining big shows in Austin in the mid-nineties. And a lot of people who had been, you know, converted by nirvana or grunge or Lollapalooza were really open to seeing sonic youth and and i talked to multiple people i can remember multiple what i would consider squares or straight people who were open to sonic youth but when when they saw them they didn't dig it you know they just couldn't get what it was all about the the dissonance was too much the noise was too much and and the lack of strong singing so you know they were a band with a ceiling um But there's a fine history of smart record labels using bands like that to then sign other bands who have much higher ceilings. Warner Brothers did it in the 70s, signing people like Van Dyke Parks and initially The Grateful Dead, back when The Grateful Dead couldn't sell any records and were making these really difficult experimental psychedelic albums. But they built a reputation as a cool record label, and that attracted people – you know, like James Taylor and Joni Mitchell, et cetera, et cetera. Neil Young, who sold a lot more records. And Geffen followed that playbook and and you know, it was it was extremely effective for everybody involved.
2: Yeah, it's a great play, especially because as you said, they're not losing money on Sonic Youth. Like they're, you know, they're making a little bit, you know. And so if they can do that, you know, and then use that slipstream effect to bring in these other bands. And they don't know which band is going to be Nirvana, but they have a feeling one of them will be right. And that's yeah. what the whole thing is about. It's like you you do your best, you bring them in the door, and then you throw them out there. And something at some point is going to catch. And it's almost like uh, it's it's the same model that has been since used by venture capital, right? It's like you yes. you take your your ten freshest faces and you put them out there, and you bankroll them, you know, modestly, and one of them is going to catch. And that's going to pay for the whole thing plus all your profit.
1: Yep, that's that's the basic plan. Although they swear to this day that they really expected Nirvana just to be another Sonic Youth. They thought Bleach would do a couple hundred thousand units. They had no idea it was going to break through the way it did. I don't think they thought it was going to get the video, the MTV play, and the radio play that it did. Although... Again, they paid for Andy Wallace to remix the album uh, and, you know, and and sweeten it and compress it and make it radio friendly. So, you know, it, they they and they and they made that teen spirit video. And, and I think Cobain had just filmed that teen spirit smells like teen spirit video a couple of days before they shot this. And apparently it had just been a total pill on the set of that and, and had feud with the director and everything. But it obviously worked out well, except when it didn't, which is Cobain's uh, disintegration and suicide, of course. So there's a consequence to that kind of big fame. But you know, Nirvana, I want to run through their career up to this point. They had put out um, – they formed in like 87, 88 in Aberdeen. They were the Melvins' little brother band. I mean the Melvins in Aberdeen and Nirvana, that's two pretty – good bands to come out of a town the size of Aberdeen. And they um, went to Seattle, got on Sub Pop. They were never as tight with Sub Pop as say Mudhoney, they were not the standard bearers of the album. Um, Mudhoney and Tad were way ahead of them in Sub Pop's Good Graces, although Cobain had insisted on signing a contract, which is really the only reason Sub Pop survived, because the contract they signed allowed them to make a fortune when Geffen made a fortune. They put out their first album, Bleach, on Sub Pop. I think they recorded it for like $600, as they said infamously on on the back of the album. That came out in June of '89. That sold 40,000 copies on Sub Pop, which at the time was really solid for for uh, a punk underground album on an indie label. And um, they were recording; they had already recorded Nevermind, and it was all ready to be released when this movie was filmed. But let's go ahead and hear our next song, and this is Dinosaur Jr.'s "The Wagon." And when we come back, we'll talk about Dinosaur Jr. and how they coulda, shoulda, woulda have been a nirvana sort of beast. This is Donnie Snow Jr.'s The Wagon. And that was Dinosaur Jr. doing The Wagon. And yeah, Jay Mascus is, is, is all over this movie. What thoughts on Dinosaur Jr. and how they played into this scene?
2: Well, Dinosaur Jr. have always struck me as kind of their own thing. Like they, you know, everything like from where they came from to what they were doing to like kind of the way they seem to be as people. They weren't really a scene band to me, you know? Yeah. Uh, And I love them. I I love all their records to this day, I think. And I think Jay Maskus is one of those rare individuals you find. uh, And it's kind of one of my favorite kinds of rock and roll musicians who, he just kind of does what Jay Maskus does. And it doesn't change that much over the years, but it's always so... Valuable for what it is that you want him to keep going, and it's like it doesn't matter who you put him with or whether he's got an acoustic guitar. I've seen him play an acoustic guitar inside at Stubbs, and I've seen him play on the big stages with, you know, Dinosaur Junior. And he just kind of does Jay Maskus music, and it's it's a beautiful thing.
1: It, it is indeed. He he, uh, yeah. an incredible lead guitar player, one of the few guitar heroes of that. Uh, era and really perfected the whole slacker persona long before Cobain came along and a lot of people had pegged him as this is the guy, this is the band that's going to come out of this underground scene and they were from western Massachusetts Um, I think they were in a hardcore band called Deep Wound or Maskus and and Murph the Drummer were, they hooked up with Lou Barlow who later um, formed Cevado and put out I want to say three albums. First couple were on Homestead, which Sonic Youth also had put out um, an album on Homestead, Bad Moon Rising, before they made it to SST. Um, And then Dinosaur moved to SST for uh, You're Living All Over Me and Bug, and um, then signed with Sire. And they were on some kind of Sire imprint. This was when there was kind of a trend of well just like Nirvana wasn't on Geffen they were on DCG and um you know Mother Love Bone had their own imprint Stardog records on Polydor and Sound Soundgarden signed with A&M but puts out their first album on SST even or their second album even though they'd already signed um with A&M so there's a little bit of jiggery pokery going on and I think I don't know with I don't I don't want to speculate as to why Nirvana I mean I know why Nirvana blew past Dinosaur Jr. It's because it smells like Teen Spirit and I think a lot of it was just the timing of it that Cobain was really young in his career and was making those big leaps whereas Jay Maskus made those leaps between his first and second album and you know if you make your big leap and you're on SST Records. And they're doing really well to sell 30,000 copies of your record. That's not going to have the impact of making your big creative leap if you're on Geffen, who can ram it down everybody's throat and sell millions of units. And I don't even know that selling millions of units is necessarily what you want to do. But trying to look at this stuff as a cultural historian, people remember Nirvana, people know Nirvana – all over the world. I mean, rap groups are rapping about Nirvana. Nobody's rapping about Jay Maskus. It's just...
2: Um, yeah, but he's still a professional musician making a good living.
1: It's today. true. He's not dead.
2: <laughs> There's a lot to be said
1: for that. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's that's the counterpoint. Uh, the touche there. But, yeah, I mean... I don't know. It's interesting because because he had a very... Neil Young thing going, and um, not as good looking as Cobain, uh, but um, you know could have pulled off the hair and the face thing easily. But also, I think the fact that that he had already sort of vibed Lou Barlow out of the band, and they never, to me, they never really got the momentum that they had from "You're Living All Over Me" and "Bug." After that, that after that it became kind of a Jamaska solo project rather than a true band, and just didn't quite have the fire. Um, but you know, be that as it may. Any any other thoughts on Dinosaur Jr.
2: Well, I mean, I my favorite Dinosaur Jr. record is Where You Been, which is you know from the post Lou you know doldrums or whatever. So
1: Yeah, yeah. I wasn't trying to diss their quality. I'm just saying that they <clears throat> they just kind of lost a momentum and it I don't know, it just seemed like solo albums more so than a band. But
2: yeah. No, and I'm with you. And that's why what I say when I say Dinosaur Jr is it's all about J Mascis, right? He has a great rhythm section uh who deserve a lot who deserve credit, but like he could have made these by himself. He could have made all these Dinosaur Jr. records by himself and they would still be great records.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, because he, and I don't want to call it like an artistic vision because that sounds for what he's doing. It's just, he's just a natural Jay Maskis, right? He just does what he does and I love it. You know, and like you said, it's yeah. definitely informed strongly by Neil Young and by a variety of other things. But he sings the way he sings, he plays the way he plays, he writes songs the way he writes songs, and it comes across from the beginning through to the current day very much him.
1: Yeah, yeah, and he's a guy who can write a vocal melody, write the chords to go with it, write the drum part to go with it. He's always said the only thing he ever needed help with was the bass lines. And how big a deal is that? No offense to my friend, the bassist
2: <laughs> that I'm talking to, <laughs> but, but you know, that's not going to make Diamond doesn't, diamond yeah. doesn't.
1: <laughs> but you know if you're bringing everything else, you know, you can usually find a solid bass player. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. You know, Dinosaur Jr. was a contender there. And Again, so much of it had to do with the marketing, though. Like, at this point, alternative is just this catch-all term, and the record companies do not have a clue what to make of it, and they're just throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. I think initially it was it was labels like Geffen that are kind of like wanting to do this sort of boutique thing If we can take a chance, we can do some low-selling albums, we can have these artists that that we're going to cultivate for a career and see what happens, but once... Nirvana and then Pearl Jam and Allison in Chains Breakthrough Big and Codify Grunge. And then especially after Cobain's suicide and the record labels just... I think once Cobain was out of the way, because Cobain was a difficult, thorny personality and a pain in the ass. And at the time, Pearl Jam was passing them by in terms of popularity by 94. And once Cobain killed himself, though... Pearl Jam was kind of left in their wake permanently and Cobain becomes this cultural icon. And then the record companies all go, aha, we're going to clone this. It's all about that charismatic lead singer doing the yarling vocals and this certain formula. And then it just candle boxed and, you know, on and on and on live and, and Nickelback and, you know, it just Creed and that, you know, they, they really perfect this formula and all these bands, like Dinosaur Jr. that kind of got signed in the wake or that Dinosaur got signed before Nirvana, um, but they, you know, got left behind. They were not seen as that grunge thing. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. They did their work. They reached a lot of people. And like you say, they, they lived happily ever after. So I think there's a lot to be said uh, for that as opposed to the fate of every one of those singers from the seattle bands from andrew wood to kurt cobain to lane staley to chris cornell i mean just a litany of of dire fates but let's do our last cue and this is babes in toyland this is dust cake boy and when we come back we'll talk about the girl power aspect of this um which i regret we're treating as an afterthought but you know that's such as it is this is babes in toyland dust cake boy was Babes in Toyland's Dust Cake Boy and so yeah Babes in Toyland's another one of the groups that was on this tour um, they had done one album on Twin Tone they're from Minneapolis so of course the local uh, indie is going to get their first album and then they had signed a deal can't remember which record label um, but they they were already I think had cut their major label debut by this point point. and I had totally forgotten A how good Babes in Toyland was and B that they actually had a relatively successful uh, run. I, I, for whatever reason, had just in my memory, they've been overshadowed by Hole and L7 commercially. And I forgot they sold, you know, they didn't go platinum or gold, but they sold, you know, a couple hundred thousand units of their first two or three records and had a totally, you know, respectable career.
2: They were a great band. I remember when I got that tape of their first record just being blown away by it and it was just so caustic and so real and i i probably didn't even understand at the time how hungry i was for for as you said girl power you know what i mean i had been like i'd grown up listening to like my dad's records you know like it was all eric clapton and and that kind of thing and it was so it was so fucking male, so over-the-top uh, in that way that when I got this Babes & toilet tape, it just really lit me up. And I didn't understand at that time, I think, all the reasons why, but I knew I, knew I liked it, and I knew I wanted more like it, and I got into L7, who were fucking incredible. Especially They're still one of my favorite bands of that era. Yeah, Live, they were... I'll tell a quick story. When I saw L7 open for the Beastie Boys at the Austin City Coliseum.
1: A legendary show.
2: And I was so excited about L7. And they took the stage, right? Nobody knew who they were for the most part. I was excited about them. There were a few other people up front who were excited about them. But there were a lot of just jocks there who were not into it. And... So they, the way they took the stage, they just sort of, they strutted onto the stage with this confidence, and they were just looking at each other like, look at all these fucking people. We're about to do some horrible shit to them, and they have no idea. <laughs> and then they just kind of like smiled at each other, picked up their instruments, and just leveled the place. And it was, I'll remember it until the day I die, it was amazing.
1: Yeah, they were they were an intense band and that was the thing about the hardcore era was there was a real split in the early 80s between new wave bands and punk bands and then the punk bands became hardcore and even bands like Sonic Youth or Babes in Toyland that or Nirvana the whole grunge scene that were not quote unquote hardcore had to bring that kind of intensity and had to police their own shows. You had to be able to command the crowd. There was no army of cops there to protect you. So you had to put on a spectacle that was intense enough that it would keep the skinheads and the Gigi Allen freaks and the suicidal tendencies cultists and all these scary dudes um, behaving themselves or at least attacking each other in the mosh pit and not attacking you. <laughs> and there were a lot of yeah. different strategies to do it but that intensity on stage and ability to command a crowd um, was was absolutely critical and and in 1991 you're still at a point where bands in the scene had to earn their bones in those kind of underground clubs and so you know they could hold their own and Babes in Toyland was very much on the cutting edge of that they were on in this, I would kind of call them maybe a third wave of feminist punk rockers. You've got your original, um, you know, Patti Smith, obviously is, is, is the first one, but then, um, you know, you've got the slits and, and the, and Susie and the Banshees, the El- the London scene was very girl friendly. And that's something I meant to talk about in the sex pistols show As as much as se- Steve Jones was the sexist, um, you know, womanizer, the sex pistols immediately opened the doors to women performers and, and a very egalitarian scene by the standards of the 70s. Then you've got, you know, the Runaways out in L.A. and that evolves into Joan Jett becoming this fluke commercial, not fluke, but a left field commercial superstar, and the Go Go's breaking through coming out of the L.A. punk scene. I would would consider Joan Chet and the go as kind of a second wave. And then this third generation is Babes in Toyland and L7. And as much as she's hated today, Courtney Love and Hole, I think we're right in there. And um, although, you know, the thing about Courtney Love she lived with Babes in Toyland for a while, and there are multiple Babes in Toyland and whole songs that have the same verse melodies and overlapping lyrics. And, you know, she, that's the knock on Courtney Love that she swiped songs from Kurt Cobain, that she swiped songs from Kent Reznor, and, and swiped songs from Kat and Babes in Toyland. So that's kind of a, a side juncture, but it's just, to me, interesting that this is kind of a nascent period, and Babes in Toyland didn't become the standard bearer courtney love did that um with hole but they were in the hunt for sure
2: yeah and they were a terrific band i saw them open for faith no more in 92 or something like that and i made sure to get there in time to see them and they were fucking unbelievable
1: yeah they they brought a real harshness is is the right word but they were charismatic enough to pull you in to that, and and just really powerful, and and um, you know, I think in retrospect we tend to focus on, or not we, but but music writers, it seems like focus on Riot Girl and and that whole Olympia scene as the be all and end all of women in rock in this period, when it was an achievement, and I think Bikini Kill might hold up better than any of, of... might be the the best band of that era for women's band, or any band, but um, at the time, they came along a full sort of generation after Babes in Toyland and L7, and the Lunatics were another band that was out there that kind of fell apart before they made a big commercial impact, But but for a minute there, they were... Uh, cooking and you know so this this i've never seen anybody define what or have a catchy name for that coterie of bands that that includes like the ones i've been listing babes and l7 and whole they kind of got lumped in with grunge they kind of got lumped in with alternative but that brings me to the last thing i want to cover which is the lineup for Lollapalooza in 91 like going back and looking at this um the lineup for Lollapalooza, which was on tour at the same time as Sonic Youth and Nirvana and these guys were uh, in Europe, it's Jane's Addiction. So they're coming out of L.A. They're kind of funk, metal, um, pretty unique band. Susie and the Banshees, which is an old school, uh, original 77 punk band that had become one of the big synth pop 80s bands, Uh so that's kind of interesting to me like you know you could have substituted the cure or new order in that in that same space too then you've got living color which is a totally Generis band that you know vernon reed and the and the i can't remember what his organization was um but the rock critic who just passed away greg tate uh, and vernon reed had formed the black rock coalition or something like that so they they were a black rock band and they were very open about, we are a black rock band. And and so they're kind of in that heavy metal. I mean, they're very Bad Brains influence. So I guess punk, funk, metal, you could categorize them. Then you've got Nine Inch Nails, who are industrial, uh, basically ministry junior at this point. And then Ice-T and Body Count. And Ice-T also you know did some rapping on that. I saw that tour. So you've got a rapper and his heavy metal band. Um, and then you've got the Butthole Surfers, who are... Uh, punk underground scenes and and the buttholes and I would say that Sonic Youth after you know they they were initially aligned with like the Swans and Live Skull and that New York scene but then when they put out records on Homestead and SST I would lump them in with the buttholes with Dinosaur Jr. with Big Black uh, Pussy Galore naked Reagan kind of to an extent of, you know, um, of noise rock bands. Robert Criscoff tried to, tried to brand them the pig fuckers, but that's a terrible genre name. It's, not, it's a, you know, just an abysmal name, abysmal marketing there, but that, though, that was kind of a scene there. And so the buttholes are on Lollapalooza. And at this point, even at Lollapalooza, sometimes they would have to build them as the BH surfers. So very different world. Then you have the Rollins band, Hank Rollins coming right out of Black Flag, so hardcore punk all the way. The Violent Femmes, who are very much REM era Alterna rock, and then Fishbone, so more LA funk rock. So not nearly a grunge band in there. I mean, you know, and that these that was the lineup of bands that was this full on stadium tour, and that I think the Lollapalooza tour did as much as anybody to lay the groundwork for Smells Like Teen Spirit.
2: Absolutely, I mean the as you said, it's like kind of a wacky coalition when you read it out like that, but you know, and that's why the the I think the term alternative sort of made sense at the end of the day because this was all like this music was all an alternative to what we were used to, whether it's fishbone or Henry Rollins, you know it's it's something different, and uh, I think it was an amazing and important thing that happened. And, and I think the buttholes, you know, I'll always champion them, you know, cause they're our hometown boys, but man, they, they made a, a huge impact for like, they were the Kings of weird and they really like took it a long way and, and made a lot of positive waves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there for a while, they were kind of the grateful dead of underground rock. I mean, they, they, Played the biggest shows, had the most loyal following, and it was just sort of unbelievable. I mean, I had heard the records growing up in Borker, Texas. I'd heard the records. I liked some of them, but I thought they were a little bit weird and pretty scary. But it wasn't until I saw them in Austin at the Opera House that I had this massive conversion experience, and it was just – I. It was just overwhelming. It was a sensory overload, and you know, and and their style of multimedia live show, Ministry absolutely copped it. And and you know, then the Prodigy steals ministries live show. Nine Inch Nails steals ministries live show. Like they set the template for quote unquote alternative uh, heavy rock bands throughout the 90s. Um, you know, all the way up. Anybody pre-Green Day, I guess, that, you know, there's that whole wave of of really angry, scary, degenerate sort of, you know, punk slash industrial stuff that, 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 that the that the butthole's totally influenced. So yeah, so that's, that's kind of where we're at with um, 1991, the year punk broke, which we also should mention was an ironic title uh, at the time, although it came out, by the time it came out in 1993, it sounded like self-evidently true. But when they named it that, they were making fun of Motley Crue doing anarchy in the UK really badly. <laughs>
2: so. <laughs> so, any final thoughts
1: on 1991, the year punk broke, Justin?
2: Well, I, you know, it's been really fun talking about it. Uh, I, I enjoyed rewatching it, even though I was kind of like dismayed by some of it. Uh, it was great to see all these people, you know, in their youth, it reminded me of when I was young. I enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, like I think I think also harkening back to you know when we were talking about the women bands. You know, it's not nothing that that Kim Gordon is in Sonic Youth, right? And she's oh, yeah a woman, and it's it's a it's a huge deal for that band. It's a huge deal for all of us who were picking up on that scene at the time. And and she'll she'll always be like. Uh, really important in that in that way.
1: Yeah, and she was basically the face of Sonic Youth. I mean, she, she was um, their video that they had just done Cool Thing with a Chuck D crossover, which is another thing that's totally weird, that you don't think of Sonic Youth as sort of rap-aligned, but they were definitely hip to that and trying to cross-pollinate. I don't know how successful that was, but it definitely had an impact seeing that video on MTV and seeing here's Chuck D. Um, right there, you know, with Kim Gordon. And so, you know, breaking down all kinds of barriers and she's kind of the Brian Jones of Sonic youth. I mean, she's, she's not the main songwriter. Um, she's not, uh, you know, this dominant virtuoso instrumentalist, but there's some vibe to her, her, her playing and her whole persona is really special and, um, a big factor in that, and it, you know, and I was always kind of frustrated because I I was really in love with Kim Gordon <laughs> as a teenager, and uh, and I wanted her to be a stronger singer, and 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 also I was uncomfortable with some of the topics she brought up, but um you know it it opened my mind and I learned a lot, so yeah I I kind of come back around I, when I first watched this, yeah it, it was just kind of. It's always painful for me to relive my youth. Um, you know, I think about all the all the missed opportunities and the bad things I did and, and so forth and and, and so it's kinda of good to to come back around and, and forgive and forget and enjoy this stuff for what it was. So Justin, thanks for helping me heal.
2: <laughs> my pleasure. Thank you.
1: All right, we'll be back next time to talk about hype, which Oof. is about a grunge.
0: the let it roll podcast on twitter at let it Rollcast, and check out our website at let it roll podcast.com next week nate and justin will return to discuss the classic 90s documentary hype which looks at the before and after of grunge let it roll is a pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park.